pushing it through, so we may be four. I know I, I got to do this again, but we had the hailstorm go through. And just for those of you that are watching, this is this is the hailstones we picked up in our yard that was hitting our house in our yard. It was like a meteor shower out there. And of course, in my silliness, my childhoodness, I ran out in the storm dodging the meteorites and picked up a bunch of them. So anyway, that's the end of that story. But that, that's how big they were. I've never seen anything this big before. Uh, you know, except in a picture. Here, Tony, want to put these back in the freezer. We don't want to lose these. It's like it's like manna. We don't want to. You're not supposed to keep manna. Oh, we're supposed to eat it. Hey, we'll have that for a second. We'll we'll pour our, we'll pour our drinks on that tonight, Tony. Uh, are you sharing what three or two? We're in three. It's it's uh, the third. It's it's the set. Yes, this is the third night of introducing Mark. It's the second set of notes. So. Uh, we w- spent two nights on that, so the, it's the third, second set of notes, third video, third audio. If you're on iTunes, it's going to be the third message on iTunes. And we're just going to finish this up, and the next week we will begin uh, reading through the text of Mark. Uh, I think the first thing we want to do as we begin this is we spent some time last week and a little bit of the week before placing this around 64 A.D. when this was written during uh, Nero's persecution. So Nero is persecuting the Christians in Rome. Uh, He executes Peter. This is uh, probably where Mark wrote it, was in Rome. Church history records that starting in the first or second and third century. Uh, I gave you like seven different sources last week of, of people in the first three centuries identifying Mark writing it. And interestingly, again, this is not, again, I don't think there's any debate on that Mark and Peter were traveling together and that at the end of um, Peter's life, Mark wrote down the account. Uh, I would assume since he was a scribe, he would have wrote some things down ahead of time, but then finished the book up and wrote it for the Gentiles. And this is going to be key. This is possibly the first gospel written. Again, that's debatable. When was Matthew written? Like you saw, I already, excuse me, it's the it's one of the first but i think Mar- luke was probably written around 60 a.d i don't know when matthew was written for sure some say 48 a.d some people want to make mark the very first gospel luke already is saying there's other gospels written john is going to be written in 85 90 a.d when this is going to be written so this gospel is written to the gentiles matthew whenever he wrote he was writing to the jews and he presents jesus as the king of the jews he gives the genealogy going back to david luke and i'm i'm convinced just because of biblical sources uh luke was had this his book written by 60 and published by 61 62 a.d because acts was done by 62 a.d luke is writing uh, about Jesus as uh, a man, uh, and he takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam. Mark is very interesting because if Matthew and Luke are already in existence, Mark just jumps right into the story, and he follows a pattern. He doesn't give any genealogy. Uh, Mark, as we said before, was kind of dismissed throughout church history up until the 1800s was kind of dismissed as kind of like a secondary gospel because it's so similar to Matthew and Luke. And one of the things that's interesting is in Acts, we're going to go to Acts chapter 10. If you go there in your Bibles, please, real quickly. And I've got it broken down there in a diagram on the page, on the front page. But Acts chapter 10, you've got, uh, as you know, uh, Peter going to Cornelius' house. And uh, Cornelius was a Gentile, and he begins to, 
after having a vision, he, he's brought there, and he presents the gospel. And right there, I've just got from chapter 10, verse 36, we're going to tell the whole story here. Again, it's a great story. But chapter 10, beginning in verse 36, you've got Peter presenting the gospel. Early on, we've got Peter preaching on the Temple Mount uh, on the day of Pentecost, you know, uh, you know, 50 days after the resurrection, uh, 10 days after Jesus' ascension. But here we've got him preaching in Cornelius' house. And beginning in, in verse chapter 10, verse 36, just a few verses here. Uh, of course, I'm going to begin in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts all men. We're talking about not just the Jews, but all men can have the Messiah. And again, this, this was a, a stumbling stone for the Jews to get over. And Mark is doing a great service of going straight to the Gentiles with the story. Uh, and, and listen, Peter's going to get called in on the carpet. The church of Jerusalem is going to call Peter in on the carpet a few chapters later and say, what were you doing in a Gentile's house? We heard you were in a Gentile house eating. He said, well, I preached the gospel to them, and the Spirit came on them, and they accepted the gospel just like we did. And they were like, what? What did you say? So this sounds so normal for us, but this was radical uh, preaching in this day of going to a Roman soldier and preaching to his household. Anyway, he says that he accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Now, that doesn't surprise us. That lines up with the writings of Isaiah. That lines up with the prophets. In fact, that's the whole mission of Abraham. Through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. I mean, you can't even begin the Jewish story without saying it is for the salvation of the Gentiles. I mean, that story begins with that in chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, You know the message, and he says this. God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now, here's some things we're going to pick up in Mark. Who is the Lord, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea beginning in, notice, beginning in Galilee uh, after the baptism that John preached. So uh, some, some little buzzwords right here that I'm going to show you in the book of Mark is Jesus and lord christ we're going to see that uh beginning in galilee and after john's baptism and i will show you all this is in the diagram you can look ahead there and see it in the notes if you want to uh you know what has happened throughout judea beginning in galilee after the baptism that john preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and that would be Jesus' baptism. And that baptism led to power. He had supernatural power to demonstrate who he was. Uh, Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And that power is now going to be demonstrated with, uh, we'll just say demonstrated, because I can scribble that better than trying to spell the word miracle, because I always get confused with miracle too many letters. Uh, And then he says, because God was with him, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Now, notice right here, after going around, after the baptism, he goes out with power and demonstrates that God was with him. And then he goes to Jerusalem, And then the next thing Peter's going to say is in Jerusalem, he's going to be crucified, and he's going to 
rise from the dead and i'll just read that here and that those are the basic that's the that's the gospel he's preaching in cornelius's house uh under the power uh, healing all who are under the power of the devil because god was with him we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the jews and in jerusalem they killed him by hanging him on a tree but god raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen he was not only seen by all the people, but by witnesses. It goes on and talks about this. Anyway, that is Peter's, you got a record right there, a recording of Peter's gospel. Now, with this breakdown, we simply have a diagram on page 1. And the chapter 10, verse 36, and the, as the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, Mark begins his gospel with this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then from Isaiah, prepare the way for, of the Lord, make his path straight. So there's, there's, a, there's a similar introduction pointing this out. The next thing that you're going to see in Mark chapter 1 is verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So he, he switches these around, but he goes, he says very the whole book of Mark, the first eight chapters, is Jesus is in Galilee. And that takes place after John's baptism. And that's what chapter 1, verse 4 through 8 is. If you remember, those few verses are describing John's ministry. Very interesting. Introduce Jesus. He's going to go to Galilee. And then it describes John the Baptist's ministry in just four short verses. Then Jesus, in chapter 1, goes to get baptized. And now we're right here. We're still in chapter 1. See, this is all condensed in chapter 1. It's almost like he's starting Peter's sermon. Again, it's nothing unique. It's not like, wow, no one else says it, but just notice the pattern. And then it says, When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And that was his baptism. And then... In the Gospel chapter of, of Mark, chapter 1, verse 16, up through chapter 10, I'll just say chapter 11, or the beginning of chapter 11, at the end of chapter 10, this right here, and, and we'll see it as we go through it, besides him doing some, some teaching and interacting with some people, it is a just wave of wave of this. After the baptism, he was, had power and demonstrated it. He heals people. I mean, paralytics, he heals blind, he raises the dead, he casts out demons, he walks on the water or, or calms the storm, he multiplies the bread. Uh, I've got them written down here. Uh, I think I said all of them there that are just mentioned. But that, that's what is just one right, uh, one right after the other is him. Now, this is basically about nine chapters of this part being demonstrated. And then they go to chapter 11, that, that's the transfiguration We'll talk about that again tonight a little bit. But Jesus asked Peter before the transfiguration, or asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? They've got a variety of answers. And then he, Peter says, he says, who do you think I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in chapter 11, uh, he's identified as the Christ, the Son of the living God. The transfiguration takes place, and they go, in the book of Mark, they go directly to Jerusalem. That's what Peter says, the things that began in Galilee and all that took place in Jerusalem. And then once you get to Jerusalem, you're in the final week. You've got one week and two things happen there. He's crucified and then rises from the dead. And again, that is how simple the gospel of Mark is. There's a lot more details in, in uh, Luke. 
a lot more details in Matthew. And John's completely different. John, John comes at it from a completely different angle, providing seven basic signs of why you would believe Jesus is the Son of God. But he's writing some 30 years after. He's writing in the second generation, the beginning of the third generation of the church. And so John's different than this. But that's just interesting. It's not uh, anything more than just seeing another parallel between what Mark was writing and what peter had been preaching and we've got an you know the 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 church historians early church historians second third centuries say peter was was traveling with mark and mark wrote the things down that the gospel that peter shared and put it in this kind of a framework well right here you can see even the text of scripture you can make a very simple comparison and again there's nothing uh radical about what i just presented now some other things top of page one uh, just some interesting things we're going to see as we go through here. If he is writing, again, if he is in Rome, and I think, you know, I'm going to stop saying if and just start saying, you know, you don't have to agree with it, but Mark is writing in Rome, and he's writing to the Gentiles. He's going to be writing this in Greek, but Jesus, I'm sure Jesus spoke Greek. Uh, I'm sure Jesus knew Hebrew, but the language what they spoke was Aramaic. After they came back from Babylonian captivity, they brought with them the Aramaic language. That was what they began to speak. In fact, even when we get into, we're just doing Ezra, well, we're doing Ezra by going through uh, uh, Haggai and Zechariah to get back to Ezra on Tuesday nights. But when Ezra begins to read the scriptures in Hebrew to those the exiles that came back from Babylonian captivity, there's a translator there translating it into Aramaic because they've been there for a generation and they don't know the, their home language. And so people knew Hebrew, but Aramaic was the language of Israel at that time. So Jesus spoke Aramaic uh, when he would teach. I'm sure he knew Greek. I'm sure he knew Hebrew. Uh, the point being, all of Jesus' teachings are going to be, and he's going to use Aramaic words, commands will be in Aramaic. And then Peter is going to hear this and watch this and observe this as the other apostles. And they're going to record these things, remember these things. And again, there's no room for fiction in this. There's no room. Well, they made this stuff up. They don't need to make anything up. What they need to do is remember the details of what took place. It was amazing enough of what took place without having to make something bigger than it is. So the apostles and other eyewitness accounts, that's what Luke's gospel is about, they, they maintained, if we want to say, the tradition. Not, not a tradition that becomes meaningless, but this is what Jesus said, and this is the way we tell the story. And they're going to tell the story in Aramaic. When he says something, you know, command someone, and he says he's going to say in Aramaic, that's the phrase that's going to come along with the story. You can imagine... Your, your parents come from the old country, and this is what, you know, Grandpa used to always say. It's like, I don't even know what that means. Well, Grandpa always said this in some foreign language to, you know, us young ones. Um, well, Peter now is in Rome, and he's going to be teaching the Gentiles in Rome as he had been. Mark is going to be with him, and what he's going to do is Mark is going to be writing his account in Greek, but he's going to hang on to some of the Aramaic important words uh, and I, I don't know if there's heavy theological reasoning for this or a meaning for this, much, uh, as much as it is just evidence within the text 
that this was originally, I mean, Jesus spoke Aramaic, the apostles heard, remembered, and they spoke Aramaic, but now we've got to transfer this over to the Gentiles, and we're going to have to speak Greek, they're eventually going to be speaking Latin, and it's like, uh, well, this is what they said, but I don't want to lose what Peter said, because that's what Jesus said, but what it means to you is, and here's where we go, right here, just some simple examples, five of them. Um, the first in chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus is going to raise a little girl from the dead, uh, Jairus' daughter. says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Telitha kumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now again, if you're just simply writing for the Gentiles, you don't need to tell them what the Aramaic was. Just, just translate it. But he says, because Mark would have heard Peter say, and Jesus, because Peter, James, and John were the three that went into the room with him, and they were standing, and you know, they, it's not like something they see all the time. Oh, when we were Jesus, we always raise people from the dead. They're going in this room, and Jesus says this in, in Aramaic, Telitha uh, kumai, and Peter would have remembered that Aramaic, and that's how he would have told the story, but he'd always would, as Mark did. What he said was, little girl, I say to you, arise. And so there's an example of an Aramaic word being in the story, and you don't need it in the story, that he says it and then translates it in the book of Mark. Another one, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be open. That's where he takes mud and, and puts his fingers in, or spits in the mud and puts his fingers in the, the guy's ears, or he puts mud in the guy's eyes, but he puts his fingers in the guy's ears and sa- looks up to heaven and says, in Aramaic, says, Ephphatha, which means, what's that mean? It means be open. He says, open his ears, and his ears were open. Again, do you need the Aramaic there? I mean, it doesn't like, it, it's not like some, I mean, some s- secret code word, some kind of, uh, you know, s- chant that you can say spiritually that gets results. Or is it just what they're remembering Jesus said? Peter remembering, hearing Jesus say that phrase, and he could hear. Well, what's that for? It means be open. But, I mean, he remembers the story. Kind of adding authenticity to the book of Mark, I would think. Uh, chapter 9, verse 5, Rabbi, and Peter, said to, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. This is at the transfiguration. And Rabbi is a Hebrew word, also Aramaic, but it means, it means teach. Rabbi, it is good that you are here. Let us make, take, make three tents. One, and again, this is crazy talk right here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then this voice from heaven says, listen to my son. Kind of like Peter, stop talking. Uh, chapter 14, verse 36, Abba, another Hebrew Aramaic word. Abba, Father. See, they kind of put them together, Abba, Father, because Abba would be the Aramaic Hebrew, and uh, Father would be the translation of the Greek word. And then finally on the cross at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you've got to imagine if you are around the cross or in range of hearing. He says in a loud voice, so even if Peter wasn't at the base of the cross, the foot of the cross, he may be within range, or at least John and Mary were there. They could hear it. And uh, this would just, I mean, this would have to be recorded in your soul and never forget when he would say this in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even some of those that were listening, they didn't understand 
They say he's calling on Elijah. You know, he's not saying, my God, my God. They say he's calling on Elijah to come rescue him because it sounds like Elijah in the Aramaic and the Hebrew. Nonetheless, those are some words that very interestingly are in the text in Aramaic. We leave them in Aramaic because Mark himself translates it into Greek at the time, and we just translate it into to English. So that's just something that you'll see there in the book. Uh, other terms that link the gospel of Mark to Rome are the Gentiles. I've got these uh, six written down there. Talking about legions or uh, the, the legion, praktorium, that's the, the guard, the, the emperor's personal bodyguard, the praktorium. Uh, and that's a word that's in there. The centurion, that's a Greek, or a, excuse me, a, 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 a word that would be familiar to the Romans. Uh, two words for the courts. And you can see speculator and flagellare, which are two words for courts that are Roman words that are read back into the text, meaning he's writing to them. So it's not something Jesus said in Aramaic back in his ministry. This is now the courts in Aramaic, but we don't need to hear that word. He just translates it right over into a word or a Latin word that would be more familiar for them. Also the word denarius. And interestingly, right there, I've got the Greek text written out for you there. Uh, in the Greek, verse, chapter 12, verse 42. And when my book comes out here in a few weeks, I've got a, a couple pages that I think is interesting about the widow's might. And I'll, I'll show you some things when that book comes. I can show it to you. I can pass them around let you see them too. But anyway, Akai El Thusa, Mia, Kera, Patoi, Eplen. And then here it is, Lepta. You can see the word Lepta. I've got it in a box. Lepta. Duo, which means two. Ha, and then estin, which is the verb, is, and followed by codrantes. Uh, now, what that says is, and having come one widow poor, cast in lepta, two, two leptas. She's going to put in there two leptas. Now, those are called the widow's mites. She put in two small coins. The two widows might. That's actually a lepta. I've got some downstairs. Two lepta, which is a quadrantes. And so the two leptas equal one and quadrantes. You can see it's spelled correctly there in the Greek, in the transliteration of the Greek. And then I've got it written there in English, quadrons. Uh, and so two lepta. And so... The leptas are Jewish coins, first minted by one of the, uh, the Hasmonean leaders. So these are Jewish coins, but they're equal to one Roman coin. And so there he's making, she put in two small coins. How small were they? Well, the two of them were equal to uh, one quadrant, which is the smallest coin. So it's like, how small? Well, they're so small, they're like your pennies, except they're half of a penny. And so that, again, just points to the idea, or at least leads gives you insight from the text that it's being written to someone who understands these terms or doesn't understand the aramaic but yet the writer feels he wants to preserve the original phrasing of jesus words okay that's page one that we've looked at now page two um i want to review just real quickly uh on that middle diagram of the ministry as we begin the book and we'll begin the book next week it's broken into three parts chapter one 
uh, 1 through 8, and then you've got chapter 8 through 10. Again, I see I'm overlapping 8 there to 8. And then 11 to 16, those are your, your parts of, your, of, of the gospel. This right here, as we know, this is the introduction and the ministry in Galilee. Even the church historians say Mark wrote things down accurately, but not in chronological order where Luke and Matthew are going to be more about keeping things in a chronological order. Mark is not messing things up. He's not making things up, but he's organizing things into the first half of the ministry, per se, of the Galilean ministry. And we know Jesus went to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. You can go through the book of John and see four Passovers of Jesus coming and going to the Passover until he finally arrives at the last Passover. Mark has nothing. He just stays focused on Galilee ministry which isn't wrong, it's just he's focused on what's taking place in Galilee. They go to uh, Caesarea Philippi, up in, in the north of the Sea of Galilee, on the border of Syria, border of Lebanon. Uh, actually crosses over the border of Israel into uh, Syria, what is Syria today? Or Well, it's right on the border of Syria today. It's outside of Israel then. We were standing right on the border of Lebanon, Syria, looking right over there. Uh, and we were in a trench. We were in a, we were in, a uh, in 1967, they, they dug trenches so they could stay right on the border and fortify the border in the War of 67. And they'd been abandoned, but there's a little bunkhouse and there's still, you know, some um, hanging, remember that, Tony, the hanging beds there? They were just like chains and some steel. Uh, but there's a trench, just almost like World War I type stuff. It was, had metal up on it. But it was all run down. It was old from 67, which... It's not that long ago. If that was old, we're getting old. But nonetheless, uh, they're up there at the Mount, Mount uh, Caesarea Philippi at the base of Mount Hermon. And that's where Jesus on the Mount, of Mount Hermon is transfigured. And that's where he says, who do men say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's transfigured further up the mount with Peter, James, and John go with him. And then he begins to tell them, he, that's where, this is the turning point, this is the turning point because that's where he begins to speak clearly about the crucifixion. Because Peter, and we're going to talk about this next, uh, Jesus isn't using the word Christ, you know, Christ is, uh, is the Greek word for anointed one, uh, which is the Greek word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for anointed one. And it's a title. It's the, it's the anointed one. It's the anointed one of God that God had promised since the garden. The seed of the woman uh, going to be from the tribe of, uh, of, of Judah, from the son of David. It's the Christ. It's the Messiah. We see him coming in future. You know, David ta- Daniel talked about him coming in clouds of glory. Uh, Jesus is clearly the Christ, but... Uh, and, that's what, and, and he accepts it when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus accepts it. But it, you know this, you understand this, especially in our time, well, any time, but you know things in our own age. Words have meaning, but sometimes they get loaded. For example, the word liberal. Everyone should be, now watch this, now watch it. y'all going to get up and walk out on me. Everyone should be liberal. You should have a liberal education. Back when I went to school, we got a liberal education. Uh, you want a liberal education is it's 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 wide open. You're like you're learning this, you're learning some of this. You're getting information so you can think. You're, you're uh, tell me about you know teach me evolution, okay? Teach me about uh, uh, 
special creation or design. Uh, teach me other philosophies. Okay, now I, I see it. Okay, and now I can think. I can, this doesn't make sense. This makes sense. This is what I see. I compare this with, and you've got a liberal. You're not just, you know, narrow-minded. The opposite of liberal, and now I'm, I'm off subject, but I'm using an example. The opposite of liberal is narrow-minded. And sometimes, you know, even like we say, we don't want to be liberal. We want to be conservative. What, what's conservative mean? Uh, we mean we, we're narrow-minded. We don't even look outside the box. It's like, okay, no, no, no. That's, okay. So now, when, now you can see why someone says, we're liberal, Galen's conservative. Oh, boo. Well, yeah, boo, I'm narrow-minded. I don't see anything else. I, I should have a liberal education. Well, we want to be liberal. We don't want to be narrow-minded. But as you have your liberal education, you may come to the conclusion there are some priorities, some values that we need to conserve, and we are a conservative group after having this liberal education. I can talk about a variety of things, but here is my view of things. Now, that's, that's the idea of a liberal education. But you use the word liberal now. Liberal means left. I got this would be right, but, you know, I'm whatever point. I've already pointed over here for conservative, so I've got to keep my analogies correct. But it's, it's extreme left, and conservative is extreme right. I mean, it's, it's, they're radical. And so, for example, if I were to come into, and it will never happen, if I were to get to be invited to speak at a church, a large church, and I'd say, you know, I speak from a liberal position. Uh, it'd be boo, boo. They'd, they'd, you know, start, well, maybe, maybe, depending on if I was in, what kind of church I was in. Uh, it's a loaded word, okay? Christ... Messiah was a loaded word. Jesus accepts it on the Mount of Transfiguration, but then tells everybody, don't say anything about it. It's almost like it's a secret. And you wonder, why? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody I'm liberal, because they'll think I'm extreme left. Don't tell anybody I'm the Christ, because it was a politically charged word, because the way the Jews understood Christ, if you read the prophecies you wanted to read, the Messiah, the Jewish Christ, was going to come and overthrow the powers of the nations, which would be Rome at this time, and establish his own kingdom. And they weren't thinking about God coming. They were thinking about the son of David rising up like Judas Maccabeus. And he's going to fight like Judas Maccabeus uh, uh, rose up and with his brothers and his father, Mattathias. They were from the priestly tribe. And then they began to fight the Greeks or the Seleucids from Syria and just started with a small force and eventually established a nation driving out the Greeks and made a peace treaty or a covenant with the rising Romans. And so that was Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus meaning the hammer because he struck with such force. Judas the hammer. Uh, and so... That's what they were looking for. So if you were to introduce Jesus to the Jewish people, say, this is the Christ. All right, well, where, and you know, they, had, they were storing weapons. In fact, they crucified Christ, and the very next thing they started doing was looking for a Christ. And that's what led to the Jewish revolts of 66. There's two or three different Christs. You know, we think we have uh, trouble with campaigns, and, and political opponents, they had three or four different Christ figures that were going to be the next Judas Maccabeus fighting with each other to decide who was going to overthrow Rome, which leads to a weak culture, which led to them fighting the Romans, which led to their total annihilation. But then they rose back up, and by 135, they found the Bar Kokhba revolt. 
they found another guy. Uh, this Barcopa refers to the star. He was another Messiah. And this is Jesus says, many will come in my name saying I'm a Christ. Many Christs will arise. Now we think in, in, in the Western world, we think of Young Sung Moon, you know, the Moonies or whatever you call these guys. They're the Christ of the Christ. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's kind of part of the fulfillment. They're false leaders. They're not who they say they are. But Jesus was probably talking about the politically charged Christ. After me, there's going to be many who are going to come and say, I am he, I am the Christ, follow me, I'm going to do what you want, I'm going to overthrow the Romans. And indeed they did, and then they were overthrown, they were destroyed. So Christ, in Jesus' ministry, it means Messiah, it means the anointed one, it means the seed of the woman, the son of David, it means our Messiah, our, our Savior. But in the political world, it meant he's got a, a, a soldiers and military forming in the wilderness. They're storing up weapons. And when I give the word, we're going to overthrow Rome. It was a politically charged statement. And so in that sense, Jesus is not the Christ you're thinking of. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm, I, Jesus is the Christ. And Peter identifies him in the Christ on Mount, uh, uh, on, on, uh, Mount Hermon at, at Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus accepts the title of Christ because he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. But don't tell everybody because you go running off there, we found the Christ, they're all going to sharpen their swords and come running out and join the ministry. It's like, <laughs> you understand that, I'm sure. Okay, so that's taking place right here, the transfiguration. He says, and then, then, after they identify him as the Christ, and he says, he accepts it, you can just see them. There's a couple of the disciples were what they call zealots. You know, there one was Matthew was a tax collector. You know, Peter, James, John were fishermen. Uh, uh, oh, I'm trying. What else? The, the, yeah, Simon the zealot was a zealot. I'm trying to think of other careers that they had. But they were. He was a zealot, which meant he had. He he came prepared for war. He he had been training for the overthrow. Of the, he was ready to fight with the Messiah when the Messiah came. So how disappointing it is when you meet your political hero and you go here and Peter says, you're Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, that's right. Now don't tell anybody. It's like, okay, yeah, we're going to have a secret surprise attack. No, because the Christ, now this is, he says, because the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and be betrayed and crucified. And after three days, he's going to rise from the dead. And they're like, what? I mean, because they're of their culture. They're hearing Christ, the overthrow of the Romans, the military leader, and you're going to get... Okay, that's, that's going to take some unraveling. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed, handed over by the Jews to the Romans, and crucified. I wonder what that could mean. And then after three days, he'll rise from the dead. What does three days represent? I mean, does that mean years? Does that mean decades? What what mean? It's like man, and, and they're probably talking. And she's probably just easy, you know, walking. And they're probably back there just kind of having Bible study, like I am tonight. And she's just like, oh, they don't have a clue. And like he may be looking down here watching tonight's Bible study. Go, would you please just read the text and stop explaining it? Just stop talking about. It. Just read what I've got written. But anyway, and then now right here, now they arrive in Jerusalem for the last week beginning with palm sunday they got to come through jericho palm sunday and then of course the crucifixion resurrection and mark ends and again i'll say it again and and let's look at it real quickly what time we got here just look at it real quickly because we we got to do a good job of teaching this chapter 16 when we get there uh 
which will be a couple years. Chapter 16, and we looked at it before. I just want you to see this because in Jerusalem, many things happen, and we'll see all those. But the basic thing, according to Peter's gospel and what John is, or Mark is recording here, is there's the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, but it, it kind of ends abruptly, and you've got to decide, and there's no, nothing wrong with whichever position you take on this, but I think, again, this is, of course, my position, my opinion, I think the textual support is, just like you say, do you guys see chapter 16, look in verse 9, and you all see that break, correct? You see that there's a line drawn in your Bibles, right? And then there's something in parentheses. Is there something in parentheses maybe there? Either a footnote or in parentheses between verse 8 and verse 9. Now this is stinking the way it is. And it's like you've got to make some decisions on the way it is, but you can't say that's not true because it is true. The most ancient manuscripts going back to the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, even going back to the uh, 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 Mount Sinaiticus, uh, uh, Codex Sinaiticus. That's not right. Is that what Codex Sinaiticus? Is that what it's called, Codex Sinaiticus? I, I thought it was Sinaiticus something, but it's the manuscript they found on Mount Sinai, and it may be one of the Bibles that Constantine ordered to be he ordered that 50 bibles be written and given to the churches and they would have been very nice elaborate well i mean and they're no printing press these are uh, scribes writing these out and this may be one of those that still exists also there's a uh, codex vaticanus and uh, another one from alexandria but in codex sinaiticus there's a space there's a break right here uh and it's not there there's no space for it you understand what I, I, I've said this before. Let me just say it again, if you don't mind. And it, it's a codex, meaning it, it, you've got a papyrus that would be rolled up, but codex would be they'd write on, especially something like this, they'd write it on animal skin, and then they would, the leaves would be added up, and then they'd sew them together. It was like a book. It's like a codex, but it wasn't a book like we would know, but it'd be just sewn together. And the pages would look like this. They'd be, oh, I don't know they wouldn't be quite that big, I don't think. But they'd be written in their, their columns. Their columns would be written nice and straight. Now, this is not as straight as I'd like it to be. I've got some stuff that I can show you from, you know, 1,000, 1,300 A.D. And it was just, it was top and bottom, they just kept going. But as they came to the end of Mark, here's the end of Mark right here, in Codex Sinaiticus, comes down like this. And then comes like this. Again, I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head memory. And then there's space. And then right here, they begin the new book. And you never, you never do that. You just start the new book right here. So it just looks like this. But there's this eerie space right there in Codex Sinaiticus from 350 A.D. And this is right here. This is verse in Codex Sinaiticus, this is verse 8, chapter 16, verse 8. Now, they didn't have numbers at that time, right here. And there is no rest of the book of Mark. And the manuscripts before that, this is not there. there there's there, no evidence of it. It's not until later that all of a sudden, this pops in. The rest, the rest of the chapters pop in. It is assumed 
it, it was not originally there. It, it wasn't originally there. But by 350 A.D., it is still not in the text, but they know it's been written. It's kind of like we know there's a part that goes there, but the scribes of 350, we're not going to put it in there yet. Meaning it's not original, and they're not going to leave something out that's original. But then, you know, I can't tell you the exact year. A few years later, now it starts showing up. And so what's my proof? And besides, you can go and start looking at this. Right here in my Bible, my NIV Bible. The most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses. And those other ancient witnesses would be like when people are writing. This, the writers that are the Bible teachers, the pastors, those that are writing out their sermons. Um, they would quote and they'd write out the whole... They didn't have like, well, everybody open your Bible. And they wouldn't hit, bring their Bible and wave it around like this. They would have a Bible, and it's probably bigger. They and they would cut lectionary, lection, lectionaries. They would write the whole verse in their sermon. And so we can find maybe not an entire book or a, a papyrus or a, a, a codex, but you can find sermons or fragments for the first 300 years. And here's this guy, just like me, if mine was, mine was all written out. And when it came to this verse, all the scriptures would be written there. This does not exist in the early manuscripts or in the other witnesses which would be things pastors or teachers wrote out they're not writing the, these verses don't show up they're just not there but you can feel see how this book ends it's like someone eventually is going to say this and again this is important because it, it helps describe what mark is doing remember they disregarded the book of mark they went with matthew and luke and then of course john and Mark was just kind of like an abbreviated form of Matthew and Luke. And, just, well, and they weren't real interested in it. But if you take Mark and you examine it like we're examining it, you can see the early chapter, the t- first 10 chapters, and he went out in the power of God and just things that he did in Galilee, go to Mount, Mount, uh, Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi, and says, yes, yeah, I am the Christ. I'm going to be crucified. Let's go to Jerusalem. And then they go to Jerusalem and get crucified. That's the storyline. There's many things in there. And then it ends. Here's, here's how it ends. And he's writing to a group of people in Rome, 64 AD, that are under extreme persecution. Their friends are dying in the arena. Some of them are on stakes and dipped in tar, lit on fire to light up the, 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 the uh, riots or the parties of, of Nero. I mean, we know this. We don't even need to trust church historians or read it in the Bible. Tacitus, the Roman historian, writes about it. And he says, we felt sorry for the Christians watching what Nero was doing to them. So, I mean, forget your Christianity and just read world history. They were burning Christians and feeding them to the lions at this time when this book is being written. And that's, that's not, well, that's what I think. Well, Google it. I mean, you know that's going to be true. Okay. <laughs> but here's how it goes. I'm in chapter 16, verse 6, and I think this is the way because he presents, and I, I'm going to get there eventually. I've got to hurry. He, he gets to the place where he is the Christ, but he's also the servant. He's also the son of man, and he's suffering. And that's going to speak to these people in Rome because he is the son of God. He is the Messiah. But to fulfill God's will, he had to lay that down and do these things. And now the fact that you're suffering is not unique. In fact, Peter writes that in his, in his epistle. 
The things that are happening are not unique. Don't think something unique is happening to you because you're suffering. That's normal life. Life is about suffering. You need to keep your eye on Christ because even when Christ came, he suffered, but he was resurrected. And there's a, there's a reward coming. There's glory coming. And so it, it was written to encourage him. Nonetheless, I think this is a very, very classy ending. It's not like a mistake. It's not like he ran out of papyrus. He couldn't think of a good ending. I'll do it later. I think he is wrapping up his book and leaves it right there, talking about Jesus' suffering and all the things you've been suffering. He's called you to suffer. And now, here's the report. Verse 4, but when they looked up, they were going to go have the stone moved. They saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now notice it says, they saw a young, even there, it's like, saw a young man. What's a young man in a white robe doing in the tomb? It's like, it's like you've got to make your own decision. It's like, he looked like a young man. You know, it's like, I, I bet that's an angel. I mean, he's not like saying, and, and like if I was teaching, I'd give you the size, the rank of angel, and all the details, and what part of the tomb he was sitting on. It's like, okay, you're killing us with the information. But they, he just, he's, he, it's about them. It's a, it's a letter. This book is about evangelism. It's about writing and telling you the story and bringing you to faith. Now, I can just, I, can, I can't necessarily teach you into faith, but, you know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, so I've got to give you some evidence. Mark is now presenting them some information, but leaves it wide open are you ready to make the, the step? Are you ready to come out of this world and accept Christ as a resurrected Lord? And he's been building up for that since the very beginning. The young man says, don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. Now notice Jesus, the Nazarene. You're looking for Jesus, the man from Nazareth, aren't you? Who was crucified. He has risen, which right there means he's more than just Jesus from Nazareth. It's like, you're looking for Jesus from Nazareth. Yeah, he's not here. He's risen. What? He is not here. See the place where he, they laid him? Look, that's, he used to lay right here. And again, I think National Geographic and the, and the museum from France just in 2016 lifted up the two stone or marble slabs and saw the remains of the burial bench. It's in National Geographic. Uh, it's in my book, too. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. I mean, that's just kind of interesting. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And, it, and it's just, I mean, that's just interesting. It's like that even gives more, it's like why would, go tell the disciples and Peter. Maybe Peter denied Christ, but maybe this is Peter's account that Peter always tells the story. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And if, I mean, he's go tell the disciples and Galen. I mean, just, it's like because it, it was part of the story. It, he remembers it. He's not going to forget it. He is going ahead of you into Galilee where they began the ministry. There you will see him just as he told you. Now watch the women. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's exactly where the Roman Christians are at this time in 64, 65 AD. You've heard it. He's risen. You're terrified because if you accept this, you may end up in the Colosseum being fed to animals. You may end up being crucified. It's like, but there you have it. Even the centurion at the, end, at the cross, at the end of the book, you know, go to back to the last chapter, says, surely this was the Son of God. Even the Roman guards, even the centurion, the soldiers, knew that this was the Son of God. What are you going to do? And I think that's where the book ends. Because, I mean, it's not, it's like, well, he never got resurrected. Yeah, he did. 
you just got to and the, and the women he's not making fun of the women in fact the very fact i'll say this too the very fact this is one of those credits uh gives a uh, uh, validity to the gospels and, and you know this if you ever did any apologetic work is again this is is not my political belief it's not my spiritual belief it's not my philosophy but at this time in history a woman's word in court was not equal to a man's word in court and yet you've got the whole christian religion coming down to an angel appearing to the women and saying he's that this is also in matthew the women were the first of the tomb they're the first ones the first witnesses of the resurrection are witnesses who wouldn't even be accepted in court now if you're going to make up a story it's like if, if you were a literature teacher, my son's teaching literature in Taiwan for five years now, he's down in Kansas City, and he gets a part of the story, it's like, yeah, yeah, this, we got to change this. Now, you, the women can't cross this up. Let's have, a, let's have the high priest. Let's have the high priest see the angel. Now you got a story. But the women are coming, and they're coming not to see the resurrection, they're coming to do what? Put uh, 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 spices on the dead body. They're preparing him for his burial because they were rushed because it was a Sabbath when they put him in there. And so they're preparing his body. They're not coming to see the resurrection. They're coming to see a dead body. And they don't see a dead body. They see an angel. He says, He's not here. He's risen. He said he was going to be risen. Go tell the disciples and Peter. It's like, what? 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 And they go away. So, I mean, even with that story, it's like, it, it's just a great, great story that Mark's put together there. Again, like the church historians say in the second, third century, he wrote things down accurately, but not all in the right order. He put them in a sequence. He put them in the Galilean ministry and then the transfiguration where Christ is identified as the Christ. And then he breaks the mold and says, now I'm going to be crucified. But if you're the Christ, let's throw, overthrow Rome. No, Rome's going to kill me. And it's like, that's, that's not the Christ. Okay. We're wrapping this up tonight, and we'll go through the text tomorrow. We'll go to page three. I just want to point these out just so we, as we go through this, because sometimes you start reading the Bible, and some they're just used to certain phrases. You just read them and go on. But especially when you're doing just the Gospel of Mark or just the Gospel of Matthew, they're writers. I mean, they're not making stuff up, but they're selecting what they're writing for their target audience. And these are the things, for example, the titles, I'm just going to introduce these very quickly to you. Uh, we already talked about Christ. Point number two, the Son of God. Number three, Son of Man. Four, Son of David. And five, Servant. These are titles that Mark comes back to and uses. And first of all, he begins the book. Now, there's no doubt that mark believes jesus is the christ in fact the first line in the book chapter one verse one the good news about jesus christ the son of god so to mark and peter it's a close jesus is the christ but they are going to be using the word in the in the biblical sense in the correct sense and it's going to be identified he's the son of god yes but he's the son of man he's the son of david he's the servant who's going to have to suffer like, well, no, no, we don't want a suffering Christ. We want a victorious Christ. Well, that's coming. Um, Christ, identifies Jesus, Christ identifies Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Uh, Gentiles may not have fully understood this. Uh, Mark doesn't seem to make a big deal about it. Uh, 
Mark never calls Jesus Christ, doesn't never calls Jesus Christ during the main narrative of his book. It doesn't happen until Peter says, you are the Christ. But during those first chapters, he's just going around in the power of God doing things amazingly, and the story just continues to show his power. Um, in fact, Mark presents Jesus as keeping the Messiah a secret, and I've talked about that. Jesus avoids using the term. It's like, why? Well, I think it has to do with the political loaded term. If he went out and introduced himself as the Christ, the snipers are going to take him out right now because some did not want a Jewish war with the Romans. Some did. Uh, and I would think Simon the Zealot that was with him wanted a war with Rome. In fact, he probably brought his weapons along. He's probably packing. Jesus does accept Christ as the title Peter gave him. Point E, interestingly, at his trial, and all this stuff is going to come out later, the high priest charges Jesus with claiming to be the Messiah. In chapter 14, verse 61, he says, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? You are the Messiah. You say you are. Uh, and again, there I describe the political. And so they're wanting him to take that step, so they've got a reason to charge him. Jesus plays that brilliantly throughout this whole trial. Okay, another one, Son of God. Uh, you see it beginning in chapter 5, verse 7. In fact, it begins in the... Be- this is one of the high points of the book throughout the book and I, I got my notes there we'll look at it the book begins he is the son of god okay identifies him the voice from heaven at his baptism says he is the son of god this is my son whom i love at the transfiguration if he's identified as the christ the transfiguration a voice from heaven says behold my son listen to him so he's the son of god here and that's heaven two times saying he is the book begins he is then you're going to have at the very end at the cross you're going to have the roman this is key this is key for the book of mark this is why it's in this book i mean many things happen even john says if all the things were written down the world couldn't hold all the books that we could write about jesus so what we have is like well there's more happen than this well certainly there's more that things happen but the things that are written are accurate the roman centurion says surely this is the son of god and so the book of mark begins identifying him heaven's going to say a couple times this is the son of god even at the end the roman centurion says this is the son of god like a testimony mark uses a testimony to those that are in rome but going on um i got that's e point okay point f in chapter 3 verse 11 guess who else says he's the son of god the demons when he's casting out a demon we know who you are you're the son of god you're the holy one of god and Jesus tells them to be quiet. But even, even the underworld is identified. They know who he is. Uh, and then the high priest uses it as a trap for Jesus in chapter 14, verse 61. But Jesus accepts it. He says, tell us plainly, are you the Son of God? It's supposed to be a trap. Okay, well, he says, well, he says, from this point on, you will see the Son of Man coming in glory. He puts himself now, and that's going to lead to the next one. That ties into the figure of Daniel coming on the clouds of glory. And so Jesus accepts it and pushes it into the image of the Son of Man. And that's this next one. There's three uses of the term Son of Man. Son of God is clearly the second member of the Trinity. And again, that's, I mean, there's a whole definition you can build around that. But simply in Christianity, he's the second member of the Trinity. He's the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the second member of the Trinity. He's eternal. He's God. But now, Son of Man. And this is, again, an interesting... And we'll, we'll, 
learn more as we go through and these words, these phrases pop up, these terms. There's three uses in the, at this time. Is the apocalyptic. I'll just say end times because there's a lot of letters in apocalyptic. The end time, the end time figure that's going to come is going to overthrow the nations. The, the Son of Man is coming. Uh, and that is, even the Jews, they, when he says Son of Man, they see that as an eschatological figure. Also, it is a suffering figure. The Son of Man is suffering. Uh, and that's what's in, interesting. The Son of God should never have to suffer, but the Son of Man, he's coming. The seed of the woman is coming. It says right in the beginning. He's going to crush the serpent's head or crush the ser- serpent's power or crush the power of Satan. I mean, obliterate, destroy it, not just hurt it. He's going to dis- it's going to be overtaken. The, s- the seed of the woman, which would be a son of man, is going to crush the serpent's power, but you, the serpent, will bruise his heel. So from the very beginning of Genesis, this figure was going to enter history. He was going to break the power of Satan, but in the process, he was going to bruise his heel. Again, the crushing of a head means the end. The bruising of a heel means you paid a price to finish off the power of Satan. Uh, Again, a bruised heel you'll recover from, but you will limp. You aren't going to run your best race. If you've ever bruised your heel, uh, you know it's... It, it's not uh, a positive thing. But meaning, he's not just gloriously going to just destroy Satan. He's going to have to pay, a, he will be himself injured in the process. And so son of man is an eschatological figure. Son of man involves some kind of suffering. And then uh, Jesus used it of himself. In fact, it is one of the only titles when Jesus talks about himself, Jesus calls himself the son of man. So this is what Jesus was emphasizing right here is he was the son of man the fulfillment of this which would tie into suffering and i got one more thing to look at here and then we're done and it's an amazing verse right here is servant and that is what this whole book is about suffering and servant even the messiah the son of god suffered and was a servant and now if you're in romans 64 65 a.d you're going to follow the christ throughout the book of mark it says Pick up your cross and follow me. If you're going to follow Christ, you're going to be a servant. Do not think we're going to rule like the Gentiles. They rule it over each other. You're going to follow Christ. You're going to be a servant to all men. That is your role. And you're going to have to suffer. That is, and that is the book of Mark. It's the glorious gospel, but it's also what's going to happen if I accept this. And it hasn't changed. It's not just Rome 64 A.D., it's the way it is. And again, there's different levels of suffering. Um, the son of David is the next one we're going to look at. Uh, excuse, excuse me. Uh, number five, servant. Isaiah 52, 13. Let me do this as quick as I can because this is a very interesting, very clever. 52, 13 that we can see in the book of Mark. 52, 13. Uh, and we don't have time to go too far into this. But chapter 52 is introducing the suffering servant, which is Christ in Isaiah 53. Uh, 52 verse 13. This whole section of the suffering servant of Isaiah 52, 13 begins here. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness 
so will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him for they were not told for what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand and so you've got now this servant who's sprinkling many nations and if you go over here to chapter 53 verse 10 and 11 it continues i don't have time to continue reading all the verses but 53 verse 10 and 11 yet it was the lord's will to crush him to crush who this suffering servant it was the lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and through the lord make his life a guilt offering he will see his offspring and prolong his days and and the will of the lord will prosper in his hand and so the lord is going to crush him he's going to allow him to suffer and will make his life a guilt offering which is a guilt offering is going to be a payment for sin to ransom someone deliver them from sin and then we go to mark chapter 10 and this is it we're done i'm going to read mark chapter 10 verse 45 unless something happens between now and the end of the verse and a whole another thought comes to my head and then we'll spend another hour finishing that up chapter 10 verse 45 um <laughs> oh my oh it's it's 801 this is where james and john i want to read the whole thing for because it's a great material but we'll get there eventually james and john come to him sometime around jericho on their way into jerusalem after the transfiguration they still think they're going to come into the kingdom jesus is going to be crucified and james and john uh send their mom and, and they say uh can we 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 sit on your right and on your left and come can we be have you know be vice presidents right beside you jesus says, are you able to drink the cup i'm about to drink Do you understand what it would cost to have that kind of an honor and uh and and they said yeah we can yeah well, sure sure we can do it okay verse 41 when the 10 heard about this the other 10 apostles see these guys were all not like flower children james and john trying to pull a power play and get advanced position get the advanced seating before the other disciples have a chance to put in their job applications when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man... There's his title. That's he's to call himself Son of Man. Did not come to be served, but watch this, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served. He came to be served or to to be to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he takes those that, that Isaiah chapter right there. The servant and the ransom, the paying of the price for many, is that those, the chapter of Isaiah. So Jesus knows exactly what Messiah he is. He's the Messiah who's the Son of Man who's going to serve and be a ransom and bring many into the kingdom instead of just he himself getting to go to the throne. And he even told the disciples, he says, well, listen, if we would do this, if I'd march in and, he didn't say it just like this, but this was his intentions, uh, is if, we just, if I just went in there and I took the world, he says, what good would it be for a man to gain the whole world? and then forfeit his soul you've got a bigger problem than your political leaders you have a soul problem i am the only one he says that can be the servant to pay the price for your soul let's take care of this first let's get you into the kingdom before i set up the kingdom 
They say, set up the kingdom. I give you the world. You won't lash. You'd lose your soul. You would have the kingdom, but you'd lose your soul because you're not qualified. You need to have the servant pay your price to get you into the kingdom before he sets up the kingdom. The cross comes before the crown. Okay, I'll pray and we're done. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We thank you for your word. We do ask that you'd lead and guide us as we go through the book of Mark, that we would stay true to your word and stay true to your intention, that we would grow spiritually and be able to indeed serve the people of our world today and lead many into the light of Jesus Christ. We do thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your time.